This week on Making Contact. One of the biggest reasons that we have the Electoral College, and this is not what you were told in eighth grade, but I promise you it's true, is slavery. Who are the electors, anyway? And will the United States ever join the rest of the world and adopt a popular vote for president? Yale University law and political science professor Akil Reed Amar says the Electoral College discourages voting, lessens the power of the states, and could work to the disadvantage of either major political party. Whether a few Ohioans vote or a lot of Ohioans vote, Ohio is still going to get the same number of electoral votes and still be the swing states. On this edition, Professor Akil Reed Amar speaks with Angela McKenzie of Initiative Radio about how the U.S. Constitution can be changed to create a more fair and just society. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. Today I'd like to talk a little about the Electoral College. To start, I'm going to cite some items that I pulled from the Office of the Federal Register. That's the office that helps states organize their electors and in the end certifies and archives the results of the Electoral College votes. So here's the first item. In each state, the voters choose electors to select the President and Vice President of the United States based on the results of the November general election. Now there are two things um, here that could be a little disturbing. The first is the voters choose electors to select the President and Vice President. So I don't think the average American voter believes that when they step into the booth on election night they're choosing members of the Electoral College nor could they tell you who these people are. So would you please tell me who the electors are, why we choose them, and does an average Josephine like me stand a chance to be an elector one day? An average Josephine absolutely can be an elector because in fact the only people who can't be electors are the regular politicians, the members of the House and the Senate and, and so on. The way an average Josephine gets to be an elector is by getting her political party and basically to, to name her on a slate, by basically be, being a good party person. Generally pretty obscure people that have been picked by the candidates, by the parties, to basically be loyal to them. Now why do we have this system? Not for the reason that you were told in third grade or eighth grade or college. You were probably told, oh, it's a balance between big and small states. But if so, how come the big state guy always wins? We've had three small state presidents in all of American history, Bill Clinton, Franklin Pierce, and Zachary Taylor. For 32 of the first 36 years of the presidency, it's a Virginian. That's the biggest state. For the other four, it's a Massachusetts guy. That's the second or third biggest state, depending on you count. Uh, for the next four years after that, another Massachusetts guy. So it's not big state, small state. We were told also in eighth grade, oh, we have electors because the framers didn't really believe in direct democracy. But they put the Constitution itself to a vote. They believe that the House of Representatives should be directly elected, even though Congress under the Articles of Confederation, the earlier document, wasn't directly elected. They believed in direct election of governors, so that's not quite it. One of the biggest reasons that we have the Electoral College, and this is not what you were told in eighth grade, but I promise you it's true, is slavery. Because 225 years ago, if you just had direct um, popular vote, the South would have gotten outvoted every time because it doesn't let its black population, who are slaves largely, vote. 
So the Electoral College basically meant that Virginia would get to count its slaves, albeit with a three-fifths discount, but the southern states would get some partial credit for their slave populations. Who's the big winner in this system? Big southern states with lots of slaves, in particular Virginia. Remember, again, for 32 of the first 36 years of the new Constitution, the presidency is held by a slaveholding Virginian. In 1800, Pennsylvania has more free people than Virginia, way more voters than Virginia because it lets a larger proportion of its free population vote. But who has more electoral votes? Virginia does more than Pennsylvania because Virginia has a lot of slaves that it gets to count as three-fifths. So we have the Electoral College largely for reasons of slavery. If this wasn't overwhelmingly obvious to everyone when the Constitution was adopted, and perhaps it wasn't, it became overwhelmingly obvious when we had two races as soon as Washington left the scene between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And Adams won the first time and Jefferson won the second time, and it's a southerner Jefferson against a northerner, Adams, and the races both time. They're not big state against small state. It's north against south. And Jefferson wins the south, and Adams wins the north. And in the, in the second time around, Jefferson wins because he gets the swing state, which wasn't Ohio yet. It was New York. That was the swing state at the time where north met south, which was a slave state at the time. And every person who voted for Adams understood that without the extra electoral votes created by slavery that Thomas Jefferson won because he wins the South, John Adams would have actually won that second election in 1800. So by 1800, it is obvious to everyone in America who is paying any attention that the Electoral College has a huge benefit for Southern slaveholding populations, for the slave masters. Uh, next, the electors select the president and vice president. Sounds a little strange. Does the common man and woman's vote count in this day and age? Is it legally relevant, or is it kind of like an exercise that's akin to choosing the next American Idol? It matters a lot within each state. We don't add up voters in different states. We, we put them, in effect, in 51 separate buckets, 51 because D.C. also participates. Within each bucket... Yes, your vote is hugely important because whoever gets more votes in that bucket wins the electoral college from that state. There are a couple of wrinkles in Nebraska and Maine. Let me put those uh, to one side. But in general, whoever wins more votes in a given state wins all of that state's electoral votes. And, and so your vote definitely does count in New York, in Connecticut, in California. Um, and by the way, even if... It didn't make a difference, and it's very unlikely that any one voter is going to make a difference. You have an obligation to vote. People died for this. Around the world, they don't have this right. This is not just your right, but your duty, and I'll lay one other trip on you. You have an obligation to bone up on the issues before you vote. This happens only once every four years. You should devote to it the kind of attention you would to any important decision in your life, whether to take a new job, whether to marry um, a certain person, whether to have children. There are decisions in your life that you take seriously. This is a decision about the life of the republic, and you have an obligation to take it seriously. But I'm pretty sure I read that even if one candidate got the majority of the votes and the Electoral College is supposed to award the electoral vote to him or her, 
the electors could change their minds and go the other way. They don't have to. This is what's called uh, the issue of the faithless elector, the elector who seems to promise that they're going to vote for candidate X, and you vote for them because you favor candidate X, and then they pull a switcheroo on you uh, um, when they actually meet three weeks after Election Day. And this is theoretically possible. It's unlikely to happen because the candidates have themselves picked the electors. There's at least one situation in which we might want them to do that. Suppose after Election Day, lightning hit one of the candidates and they went into a coma or something. It's a theoretical possibility, this idea of a faithless uh, elector. We really haven't seen it in any way that could possibly affect the outcome in the modern era. But it's one of many glitches in our system, many, many. We could have an electoral college tie. There are all sorts of things that could happen. I'm in favor of direct popular election. And in the book, in fact, I explain how we could do that without even needing to formally amend the Constitution. I show you ways of getting to direct national election. And by the way, that's an American idea, that idea of direct election, and here's how I can prove it. Because we have 51 American constitutions, the federal constitution and 50 state constitutions. And in every state, there's a written constitution, and it looks a lot like the federal constitution, and it has a legislature, an executive, a judiciary, a bill of rights, and so on. And it has a chief executive in every state who looks a lot like a president. Four-year terms in almost every state, a veto pen, a pardon pen, and in no state do we pick that person, that mini-president, whom we call a governor. In no state do we pick that person with an electoral college-like system. We vote for that person. Whoever gets the most votes wins. If it's close, we recount carefully. That's how we do it in New York and California and Pennsylvania and everywhere else. And that's how we could do it nationally and should. In what chapter of America's Unwritten Constitution can we find this brilliant idea, Professor Amar? That idea is in the last chapter, which is called America's Unfinished Constitution. The Constitution has been amended many times, uh, and God bless these amendments. Without these amendments, women wouldn't be voters. African Americans wouldn't have a constitutional right to vote. I wouldn't be guaranteed a citizenship by dint of the mere fact that I'm born in the United States, even though my parents weren't citizens when I'm born. So these amendments made amends for some of the lapses, some of the sins, if you will, um, the original sins of the Founding Fathers, and were not done. Just as the Reconstruction Americans made the system better in the Progressive Era, we had women's suffrage in my lifetime, we got the 18-year-old vote and we prohibited poll tax disfranchisement. This new generation could add still additional thoughts, um, uh, principles, amendments to the Constitution. And in the last chapter, I talk about how that might happen. And one of the proposals I put forth is direct election of the president. And here's why I do. I actually say in the last chapter, I can tell you what the amendments of the future are likely to look like. One, they're likely to look like things that states have road tested first. States are laboratories of experimentation. So we have Romney care first, and then we nationalize it with Obamacare. And that's true not just of health care, but a lot of things in the Constitution. States had written constitutions first, then the federal constitution followed it. States had three branches of government, then the federal constitution followed it. States had bills of rights, many of them, so we get a federal bill of rights. Some states got rid of slavery. We continentalized that. States let women vote, many of them, before the federal constitution did that. 
So what did I say before? I say states pick governors by direct election. So that's one reason why the idea of picking a president by direct election looks eminently American and sensible. Another thing that I talk about is how, in general, our constitutional amendments are going to need to be supported by both political parties. America's Unfinished Constitution. Somehow that seems like a segue into another book, possibly with collaborators. What do you think of that? Well, my collaborators are called the American people. And in fact, I end by inviting people across the world to participate in this conversation. The American Constitution was adopted 225 years ago by putting the thing to a vote up and down the continent. And in that vote, a lot of people who were allowed to participate in how they and their posterity were to be governed brought new ideas to the table. For example, they said, well, we like this Philadelphia proposal, but where are the rights? You forgot the rights. So in that national conversation about ratifying the Constitution, the idea of a Bill of Rights is really born. In other words, the Constitution was crowdsourced. And way before Wikipedia, you're getting ordinary people involved in the conversation about how to make it even better still. So I try in the book to end on a kind of Wikipedia-like note saying, you know, I've put forth a couple of my ideas, but they're probably not perfect. The rest of you all, not just in America, but around the world, what say you? in history did the vice president become the presidential running mate as opposed to the presidential rival? That switch happened after the Adams-Jefferson elections of 1796 and 1800-1801. Under the founding model, whoever came in second in the race for the presidency, the runner-up, was automatically vice president. So Jefferson and Adams run against each other in 1796, and Adams wins, and Jefferson comes in second for the presidency, so that makes him vice president. And in a world where political parties begin to emerge, that's not very stable, because Adams and Jefferson actually represent very different views, and now Jefferson is a heartbeat away from Adams, and the two men actually, the sitting president and the sitting vice president, are running against each other four years later, and it becomes apparent that this is not a great system, to have someone who's been running against the, the guy who wins and telling you for a long time just how crummy that guy is, be a heartbeat away from the presidency itself. That would create bad incentives for partisan impeachments, God forbid, for assassinations. So after the second Adams-Jefferson election, which was pr there was a lot of bad blood in that election, a lot of sort of um, partisanship and even a little mudslinging back and forth, the thought was, let's have tickets. We're going to have a president and a vice president from one party, in effect, going up against a president and a vice presidential candidate of another party. And so the idea of the ticket system emerged, and that is all reflected in the 12th Amendment to the Constitution, which was proposed and ratified after the second Adams-Jefferson election. Young people are taught in school and via the mass media to exercise their right to vote so their voices will be heard. And, of course, you just reminded us how important it is to vote. 
what can educators do better to educate young people about the Electoral College and its history and how it actually does affect the election? Well, I think it begins early on. So kids play with baseball cards. I think they actually should have president's card. So in, by the time you're in fourth grade, you should know your presidents. There are less than 50 of them, and if you know one page of facts about each president, sort of, um, you know a lot of American and world history. And it can be fun you're learning about these people just like you learn about Reggie Jackson and Babe Ruth and Pablo Sandoval. So in fourth or fifth grade, you learn your presidents, then you learn the 50 states. Um, and a little bit about them. You learn about geography and history. You learn the countries of the world, and that's before you're a ninth grader. There are less than 200 of them, and now you're prepared to be a citizen of America, a citizen of the world. And then in high school, we actually have to make this a little bit fun. Um, politics is a certain kind of competition. It can be as fun to watch as baseball. Unless you're into baseball, it's kind of boring. But if you're into baseball, you understand the game, it becomes interesting. So we actually have to teach students early on this game, I don't mean to trivialize it, that we call politics to make it interesting, to make it human, to make it real and relevant and engaging. And then when you graduate, part of your graduation ceremony should be to make sure that you've registered to vote. You know, and um, So that should be a rite of passage, just like your high school graduation. So learn your presidents, learn your states, uh, learn the countries of the world, register, rock the vote. Um, and, and so it begins early on. Our governments have to make it easier for you to do this. Instead of setting up roadblocks to voting and registration, and there are different ways they can do it. Some states, for example, are allowing early voting. Other states allow for same-day registration. In some states, maybe Election Day could be a paid holiday. Uh, some states might allow you to vote during the weekend um, because if it's on a Tuesday and you punch a, um, a, a clock, that's going to be more difficult to you. So states can experiment in various ways about how to make voting a little bit sort of easier and more accessible. In a direct popular election world, state governments are going to have incentives to make it easier for you to vote because the more people vote from in your state, the more important that state becomes in the national race. In today's world, whether a few Ohioans vote or a lot of Ohioans vote, Ohio is still going to get the same number of electoral votes and still be the swing state. So right now, Ohio's legislature might try to suppress the vote, and Ohio doesn't suffer from it. In the new world, the better world that we could give to our grandkids, where it's direct popular election, states are going to have some incentives in some ways to sort of compete, to come up with what's the best way of energizing citizens and getting them to go out to vote. Because the more people from New York actually show up and vote for president, the more important New York becomes in the presidential sweepstakes. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to an interview with Akil Reed Amar, conducted by Initiative Radio's Angela McKenzie.
Here's another item I pulled from the Office of the Federal Register. It says, in December, the electors hold meetings in each state to cast their votes for president and vice president. What will the electors do in between election night and electoral college voting day? And does this kind of lag time leave any room for funny business? It won't if the electoral college result is clear. If it were 269 to 269, which actually could happen, you flip the coin and it, lines, it, it, it lands on its side. If it were 270 to 268, you might see people trying to do funny business, uh, um, uh, dangling bribes of ambassadorships and, and other things. But unless it's that razor close, I think the electors basically just, you know, um, do what everyone else does. You know, wake up every morning, go to work, and live their lives in relative obscurity, go to this convening within each state, the 51 um, groups of electors meet in 51 different places, the 50 state capitals and uh, the District of Columbia. The one day they have this very special event that they go to, a sort of a little field trip, and then they go back to living there as Josephine or Joe, their relatively uh, humdrum normal lives. That will happen unless it's 269 to 269 or 270 to 268, in which case funny business may be attempted, but I hope it doesn't succeed. Could they go back to living their normal humdrum lives of being mm, Bill Clinton, since he's no longer a sitting president, but he's definitely a loyal Democrat? Um, I think, actually, Bill Clinton would be eligible to be an elector. The people who aren't eligible, basically, are sitting members of, of the House. And, and I have to go back and, and double-check all the, the disqualifications, but I don't think sort of past um, office holders are, as a general matter prohibited. Let me identify one other scenario in which life would not be humdrum between election day and mid-December for an elector. If, God forbid, something were to happen to uh, one of the two uh, winning candidates. This is not out of the question. Horace Greeley ran for president against Ulysses S. Grant. He lost on Election Day, but he ended up dying, maybe heartbroken, between Election Day and the meeting of the Electoral College. So if something like that, God forbid, were to happen, then the life of the electors would be anything but humdrum because they'd need to basically improvise, call an audible, because something huge and profound after Election Day would have happened that they'd need to take into account. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that even though the electors elect our president, they're not beholden to any federal laws because each state is responsible for deciding how and who can be one of its electors. Does this mean that um, a very influential individual who's a resident of a state but a non-U.S. citizen could be a member of the Electoral College if the governor agrees and sees fit. You know, that's such a great question. I've never thought of it. No student has ever asked it. I would have to look it up and research it, but it might be possible. Because I am not a U.S. citizen, but I don't think that stops me from paying $75 and joining the Republican Party or whichever. Um, <laughs> he's he's going to the book I now. This is such a great question. I've never actually thought of it. My parents, when I was born, they're not citizens. I am. Could they have been electors? My grandmother, my, my wife, when she married me, wasn't a citizen. She is one now. But could she have been? Because I used to tease her, she can't be president. But she could have said, yes, but I could be a presidential elector. And I've never really thought of that. Let me take a look here and see. 
um, what we've got. Well, I think my mom's going to be proud because I've stumped the Sterling professor. <laughs> I don't see any citizenship requirement. Um, uh, so uh, that, that would be a great paper for someone to write up. Thank you. <laughs> Do you think on some level the Founding Fathers were elitists because of this electoral college system? and they weren't into the, the masses? I think they were, in some respects, elitist. I don't think the Electoral College is the main symbol of their elitism. The Electoral College is the main symbol of their compromises with slavery. I think their elitism shows up in the Senate, which is going to be originally indirectly elected. It's, um, we don't have popular election of senators constitutionally until the, the 20th century, the 17th Amendment. So they would have said that ordinary people are capable of self-government, but not everyone really is going to know the world well enough to be a senator. And the sorts of people that you want to have as senators are people who understand the world, and they are best picked by insiders, state lawmakers, because they may not be popular politicians who are good at sound bites, and yet they may actually be the wisest folk around to help with foreign policy, to um, decide about uh, treaties, to uh, help the president uh, decide who should be on the Supreme Court. So I think the, the framers of the Constitution were to some extent elitists. On the other hand, they gave the world more democracy by far than it had ever seen before. They put the Constitution to a vote, which is pretty amazing, and the vote wasn't rigged. And in New York, for example, we're meeting in New York right now, all adult free male citizens were allowed to vote. No property qualifications, no race tests, no religious tests. Pretty amazing. That was the first time that New York had ever had so open an election be, um, as that one. The next question is a little bit off topic, and but I thought I'd throw it your way anyway. I had a conversation with an elder in the First Nations artistic community, and he told me that the U.S. Constitution is a bit of a ripoff of Indian tribal law, and the equivalent of our framers would be the elder Indian women. During your constitutional travels, have you come across this kind of information? I've heard many citizens ask me if the Constitution was modeled on the Iroquois Confederacy or certain Native American practices. I think the great historian, Jack Rakove, he's a professor at Stanford, he's won a Pulitzer Prize for his work in American history, has pretty conclusively disproved this thought. It would be nice if it were true, very PC, but he says there's almost no evidence um, of this. So I don't think the Native American influence was extremely large um, in the framing of the Constitution. It would be nice if it were so. It, in fact, isn't so. And, in fact, Native Americans are the big losers in many ways in the Constitution. They get pushed off the land. The Constitution is basically about manifest destiny, the Monroe Doctrine. It's going to lead to a, a system in which Americans benefit, but it's not designed for the benefit of non-Americans, not for the benefit of the British or the Spanish or the French or the slaves who are seen actually as aliens in, in, in the midst of, of America or the Native Americans. They're going to be, in some important ways, the losers um, at the founding.
You just heard an interview with Professor Akil Reed Amar, conducted by Initiative Radio's Angela McKenzie back in 2012. Professor Amar is the author of America's Unwritten Constitution and has since published another book entitled The Law of the Land. You heard music from Apollo Soul, Jazzar, Fowler, and Swing State native Fields, Ohio. For more information or to download this edition of Making Contact, visit radioproject.org. You'll also find past shows and an opportunity to help guide our questions with the Ever Wonder tab. Like Making Contact on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Nicola Scaleri. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.